The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello everybody, I'd like to welcome Paul Kigannon from Clare Galway. Paul Kigannon is a coach, coach educator, author and creator of the Carver Framework. He has particular interest in youth sports coaching. He consults with sporting organisations and clubs as well as corporate entities in relation to creating learning and performance environments. He also has a new book out called Be the Best You Can Be in Sport. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks, Simon. Happy to be here. uh, a little uh, out of my comfort zone in that most of the interview uh, podcasts and stuff I do was just solely on coaching and and that's so I I am both excited by today and a little I don't know yeah yeah well don't worry we we won't we won't grill you too hard but so are you very busy at the moment with everything um uh, what do they say? Sometimes busy is a new lazy. Some people that say it, they're busy are lazy. And another fellow said to me one day, he says, you're probably not as busy as you think, but I am m- medium busy at the minute, yeah. Medium busy at the yeah. minute. Yeah, well, well, that's not a bad complaint. Yeah, I have a few creative things that I'm trying to work on at the minute, and I find that uh, um, I'm not... The engine isn't moving as hard as it needs to at the minute to get through things. So um, probably the Christmas break. I just finished a book too, and um, they leave scars uh, in my experience. So um, I'm probably just <laughs> I'm, I'm just getting back to the engine cranking up again. And uh, yeah, I'm 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 moving again. Yeah, I'm moving again. Yeah, and uh, tell us at the moment: Are you um, is there homeschooling in your house, or is there you know have you have you? Is your are y'all working from home? Yeah, well, I I live alone, right? so uh, but there still is homeschool. Okay. There there still is homeschooling okay. because uh, yeah, I I'm a teacher. I job share in teaching, so I work week on week off, and I'm involved in learning learning yeah. support. Uh, so um, well, my lady's in America at the minute, so I'm I'm alone at the minute. So uh, yeah, look at well, yeah, so that, at that's, okay. that kind of uh, works out okay for me when I'm working and uh, my head is down. Uh, but there is a bit of homeschooling going on, yeah. Uh, I job share, so I work week on, week off as a primary school yeah. teacher as well um, for now. And uh, yeah, there's always work, homeschool, everything. Yeah, I suppose now, you know, teachers are getting greater appreciation for the work they do now that parents can see, you know, what, what it entails and the sacrifices they have to make sometimes, you know, because... I saw a post the other day on Facebook where one woman said, she said, when I was young, I used to say to my teacher, what do we need mathematics for? What will it, what will we need it for when we're older? And little did I I realize we would need it to teach our own kids at home. Yeah, well, like, you know, the long and the short of it is society is only going to be as strong uh, as, as the education it provides its youth, so... The better the teaching structures and the better uh, teaching you have in in a country, the better the country is going to be. So education is the way forward in all, in sport, in in everything. And uh, developing articulate and intelligent people is the measure of any society. So, yeah, teachers are are important um, for sure. And uh, good ones are are very valuable for sure. Yeah. and, And sometimes that's the thing with teaching, as you said. It's there are lots of good ones out there, but there's some that are only in it to try it out. 
So I suppose maybe those ones will get found out during this whole process, you know? <laughs> ah, maybe, yeah. But I suppose before now, it's like every profession. I don't see teaching as a job for life anymore. I think it'll be more transient than that. And perhaps in the past, people would have stayed in teaching because, you know, it was a pensionable job or there wasn't many more options or, you know, they were only qualified to do a certain thing. But I would see it now teaching will be a job that you know people might mightn't do all their lives anymore they might do a while it it it, it can uh, it can be tough after a while you know when you're young and you've all that energy and you've all that enthusiasm and uh you know it, it it can it can be tough it can be a tough job for people so i can see people moving in and out of it and that's probably good for education you know people staying in the same thing just because you know keep on keeping on probably isn't a great thing you know yeah i i noticed that here because i i've been a teacher here since i came here and obviously i was teaching music in ireland but um i the one thing was for me i, I was teaching three years here of third level or seven like second level education you now in in secondary schools and um I noticed that a lot of the teachers in Spain will stay in the job for years. They will stay for 20 and 30 years. And, and it's it's like a vocation, but more often than not, for the ones who don't love the job, it's more about the stability and the salary and staying in that job and being safe. And they'll kind of look at you if you say, oh, I have enough of this, I'm going to stop teaching now, I'm moving on to something else. They look at you like you're crazy. Why would you want to do that? But I think in Ireland, it's a little different because people, you know, do it. And if they realize it's not for them or something different comes along, they're not afraid to make that change. Yeah, well, it's, 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 a, it's a very big responsibility, like, to, to be, uh, I wouldn't say in control, but definitely be steering the education of 30 young people. It's, it's a big responsibility, so it's not to be taken lightly. And if it's not for you at, at a period in your life or whenever, you know, there's no big drama. Just move on. Someone else will come in, you know, young, hungry and energy. And it's the same principle in coaching. You know, it, it's it's the same. It's the same idea, you know. And then with, even within teaching, there's different areas. You can go into principalship. You can go and work with the department a little bit. So there's, there's a bit of leeway there, too, for people, you know. Yeah, of course, of course. Let's um, Let's start. Let's go back kind of looking at your early life, Paul, because, you know, obviously you're from Gertha Dewey in Clare Galway. And and uh, yeah, so so when you were growing up there, what was it like for you growing up around Gertha Dewey? Um, I would imagine it was pretty ordinary. Um, I was the youngest of three. Um, my dad was a carpenter, and my mum uh, did a bit of work, and she stayed at home. And it was very very ordinary, uh, very very happy, very very simple. Um, um, you know, our, our family would have valued hard work, and my father would have worked really really hard. And uh, he would have uh, been a carpenter and he would have been really into his trade or his craft and uh, he would have set high standards for himself in that. And uh, I would have probably observed that and noticed that. And I think we just had an ordinary upbringing, um, you know, same as anyone. And uh, they were happy days, yeah. Then as I got old, like I would have been involved in sport. So that would have been a huge part of my my life um i had a great passion for my hurling club and i still do karen moore so that that kind of uh drew me in up there into into um hurling especially and into sport and into a sense of being something small or something big and uh, and an identity and uh passion for things so that kind of drew me in and i'm still in and uh i don't know is there a way out so uh that, that was about it you know and uh 
that that's been the life like uh, i suppose from i i you know when i get passionate or interested in something i would be um pretty detail oriented and i would be pretty um you know I'd, I'd i'd put a lot into it so that my life has probably become about coaching and teaching and uh trying to create uh right words that will help people inspire them to coach uh better and then i i am just an ordinary coach myself i i'm still involved with my own club um i'm not really ambitious in coaching i just see it um i just like doing uh, friendship and uh, them kind of things would be important to me so I would that's why I coach I coach for my community and I'm involved with a, an adult team at the minute um, as well and I'm doing that for um, I, I would have great time for them people that are that are, I'm involved with so that's really my motivations and then I stay rambling and it was on the right on the right hand side I, I just uh, you know I started writing a book on my kitchen table and I'm still sitting at the kitchen table and I'm still writing books and, yeah and, and- um, I have to I have to just going back there because obviously me and Paul met each other a long time ago because I used to work with Paul's dad, Tony. And um, because, as he said, Tony was a carpenter and and I started serving my time with Tony and I worked with him for about three years. And for me, it was a great time. You know, I loved your father. He was a great man. And, you know, he was, as you said, he was a very good carpenter and very, very passionate about his work and very proud of the work he did, you know, so. He was uh, <clears throat> he was one of these men who had a lot to teach, and you know, obviously, as being your father, I'm sure he taught you a lot. And the thing was, um, you know, he was also, which was the I always tell the 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 story of I don't know if you ever know heard the story, Paul. I don't know if you did. It, it's uh, when I, the first time I met your dad was I applied for a job in the Connacht Tribune for a carpenter and your dad put an advertisement in and uh you know the classified looking for an apprentice carpenter so at the time i was 15 and he was he had put in the ad looking for a 16 year old so i was thinking how am i going to get around this so i wrote a letter to him and i said uh hi tony whatever i'm simon and i'm 15 and three quarters you know and uh, I was trying to emphasize the fact that I was nearly 16, you know. And so I wrote that letter to him and he came to our house in Curfin to interview me. And, you know, it's funny. My parents were sitting in the sitting room and Tony was there and I was there. And he he said to me, you know, that bit in the letter about being 15 and three quarters, it kind of grabbed me because I, he thought I thought this fella's really trying to show me that he's not quite there, but he's nearly there. And he said, so it made me interested. And then um, at that time, I had been studying karate in Chum, and I didn't know Tony at, at that stage, you know. And uh, so he said to me, and do you do any sport? And I thought, oh, here's another GA head now and, you know, uh, someone who only wanted to play Gaelic football. And so I said to him, well, you know, I, I do karate. And usually if I told people that, you know, around, especially in Curfin being a big GA, you know, pillar, um, they would say, oh, you don't do Gaelic. You don't do football or hurling or anything. And I'd be like, no, no, I, I do karate. But I said to Tony, oh, yeah, I, I, I do karate. And he went, well, do you? He said, so do I. And I was so shocked. I was like, really? I said, you do karate? And he said, yeah, I'm, I teach karate in Karandola. And I was thinking, and I think that was the moment once I said that and everything else, it kind of, we had, there was a little bond there then, and he, I got working with him. And for me, it was a great experience. I loved working, and your dad taught me a lot. And 
you know, he's gone now, obviously, and you, you all miss him a lot. And But I can see how he was such a great influence on your life, too. Yeah, Lucas, you know, uh, you know, you try not to be too revisionist when you're looking back because, uh, you know, uh, whatever, but you do definitely reflect on, you know, how you got to where you got. But, um, yeah, dad was uh, very much a perfectionist in what he did. And, uh, I, I, um, I got some of that as regards stuff he taught me. He definitely taught me no carpentry, uh, cause, uh, he taught me how to pass tools to him. I'd say <laughs> I, I spent 10, ten, ten, ten years in apprenticeship, uh, finding tools in the van and passing tools to him. I think that was, uh, probably, uh, one of his limitations there. He never let us make mistakes. He didn't want us making mistakes. So, yeah. I didn't learn a lot of carpentry, and uh, I did the I did the karate with him as well. Uh, he had four clubs uh, at one stage. Uh, he was a third black belt, I think, and he had four clubs. So it was a babysitting service for my mother. We used to go off every night. Uh, the karate was something I enjoyed, but um, it wasn't action enough for me. Um, it moved too slowly. I used to spend a lot of time in the toilets just... <laughs> Dawson and uh, no but we had great time with the karate so you know there was uh, great journeys there bus journeys all over Ireland competing and and, uh, yeah looking back look at there'd be definitely uh, even a lot of my friends would have worked with my dad you know would have served their time with my dad uh, and that and they would probably say we're quite alike I don't know can I see that but um, look at uh, it wouldn't be a bad thing to be like him I don't think you know no no I think you know I I think you know the, the the man that Tony was. You know, I, even if you, if anybody's a bit like him, that's a great plus. And and you know, and let's go, let's go looking at your your dad was from Sligo originally, wasn't he? Yeah, dad was my mother and father from Sligo, and they met in London, and they came to Galway, and they uh, had us. Yeah, so dad would have start working early, went to England, and worked in the buildings in England, and that. And I suppose really, you know, dad then, you know. He got mesothelioma, which is from asbestos. So he he picked he picked that up out, out there. We believe, and uh, yeah. So um, he's. I would often say he, his passion or his work was the death of him, and I hope uh, the same isn't true of me in time. Uh, so I have to I have to watch that. You know, there's one thing I have to say about your dad. When I worked with your dad, you know, even though as you said, he he probably had picked that up in in London. But I always remember when I would work with your dad, he was always very careful about asbestos and about, you know, even like to do with rats, like because your dad used to build a lot of kitchens and stuff. And I remember taking out kitchens and your dad would say, oh, we have to wear gloves now because there could be, you know, a rat piss or whatever under the units. And, in, you know, so we have to be careful. So he was always very careful about what what he was working around and and he would always say oh we can't work on that now because that's best that somebody else has to come in but as you said unfortunately it probably something like that affected him when he was in his younger days when there wasn't as many warnings around about that kind of thing yeah i would say yeah definitely uh, any when i used to work with him he was very conscious of dust and stuff like that and i i would imagine that when they were younger in england i would imagine they went they they were in awful places and they did uh, awful things because they had to you know and i'd say that probably uh, taught him a lot about how he had to look after himself and and that but uh, yeah yeah it's definitely yeah. on reflection he was masks and health and safety orientated hugely but i'd say when they were young and when they were over there they were thrown in anywhere and you know. yeah yeah that's that, that's the thing so so when when um 
for you, you said there you started playing hurling. Were you, while you were still doing the karate, did you start hurling or did you give up the karate and start hurling or how did that go? Yeah, well, we would have always done it kind of conjointly, I suppose, but the karate really, and I tried to go back at it a few times, I, I, I um, concentration would be something I would, I would find sometimes hard. It just wasn't for me. And I've gone back to it since and that and, I wasn't really passionate about it, so I suppose then Dad got bad knees and everything, and eventually he just he just packed it in, so that was a natural end to it. So mm-hmm. then, then we were I was playing hurling and football all the time, and uh, yeah, just once he was out of it, I I was out of it. It was you know it wasn't yeah. no big it wasn't no big loss to me, but there was definitely great. Um, I remember at the time in Galway in the nineties, there was just a great energy about the competition of karate. It was big back then, yeah. and uh, the dubs used to come down a lot. You'd the All Irelands, and you'd have the different Connacht Opens, and, right. and the dubs. George Riley, and all those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the dubs yeah. used to come down, and it was quite fearsome. You know, it was quite. I'd say if it was now, it is. It'd be really blown up to be. Um, it would be glamorised, but um, yeah, there was a big, uh, there was a tribalism to it, and there was a lot of good guys around Galway, Jerry McSweeney, Frank McDermott, uh, Mile yeah. and Johnny Mile, and all them boys. Uh, they went on, they represented Ireland, and they fought in Europe, and uh, you know, it, there was an energy to it. And obviously, when your dad was involved, my dad was involved there. He'd be fighting or he'd be refereeing, so you know, it was kind of cool enough. But uh, yeah, I, I think they were very enjoyable days for sure. Yeah, because uh, like last week, I had Dave Joyce from. Dave Joyce Martial Arts and I'm Galway on and we were talking about those good old days in Galway with you know the big lot of the clubs and everything but I remember that vividly you know my instructor in tune was Seely Kelly and you know I remember going to between going to the Gradens or going to the freestyle sparring competitions or kata competitions there was a, a sense of kind of community and, and that tribalism as you said because and, you know, when you were young, looking up to Jerry McSweeney and Frank McDermott and all of those, and it was great. I mean, and, and it was, there was a sense of rivalry, but everybody was together in it too. And, you know, George Riley would come down. Yeah, I think I think when the I think when the dubs used to come down to fight, like I think there was, uh, you know, there was a bit of glamour to that. And I suppose we were west of Ireland, so you know, yeah, it, it was great to see our lads uh, being able to beat them. Like there was a shine off them boys coming down. Yeah, and I think yes. some of them some of them went on to different things. I seen Paul Byrne went on to be kind of a remember him, Paul Byrne. He went on to be kind of a celebrity fit fitness trainer, Body Byrne, I think yeah. he is now. But I can remember him. They were shine off them boys coming down and then our lads would give it to them so there was, and there was, there was, there was, a, there was uh, also the lads from Cork as well because you had Ray Payne and a few of those from Cork and I remember yeah and when Kanazawa used to come to Cork there was always this big thing of the Galway and the West going with the Dublin lads to Cork so it was always very competitive too yeah I think so I think I think from our side it was probably because the the Gallo boys were good at the time like Jerry McSweeney was really really good and sure it's like everything if you know them you think this is great like so they were yeah so there was definitely oh the Cork boys yeah to me and all them boys so because dad was involved at that and I think he was he would be either refereeing or he'd be fighting or he was in the IFKU or whatever it was called at that time so you know even Riley like he used to organise all that stuff and so that was definitely um, even though I wasn't into the, the, the I definitely wasn't into cat I didn't mind the fighting but I just uh, the detail of the cat really bored me but uh, I liked the, the energy and the I remember it used to be around Lent time all the time uh, when we'd be when the 
competitions would be on, and I'd always be off the sweets for Linton. I'd always break them at the time of the the time of the competitions because they'd be there and there'd be a shop. But uh, yeah, you know, Jesus, I haven't there'd be always a stall. In yeah, the yeah, yeah, and you'd blow your head off with sweets. But uh, yeah, Paul, Paul, Paul Hardyman now, who owns Shomri Yoga in Galway, uh, he used to, uh, he was Nicky Hardyman's son. Uh, I remember, yeah, yeah, Nicky, Paul, and there was Paul, Nick, Nicky was the father, and Paul, and what was the other and, one? Andy, the yeah, Andy. Andy, that's so it. So Paul Andy. now is, uh, owns Shomri Yoga inside in Galway City, so yeah, I'd still be friendly, or I'd bump into him, and uh, yeah, so all them, yeah, it's, uh, it, was, it, it was a special time as far as I could see uh, back then, I was yeah. only young. I was only young, but it was definitely a yeah. bit. Of, uh, I, I remember Nicky, Nicky Hardyman was a great character. You know, everyone knew him. Yeah, I would have very vague remembers and uh, memories of Nicky. In uh, I, I, I can visualize him, and I can remember, uh, I can remember being in at his house one day, and I remember ultimately when he died. Then, but yeah, they were they were great old days. Yeah, and I, I think like that. Obviously, they talk now about physical literacy and fundamental movement skills and all that. Like, and even now, in, as regards uh, in education, like they definitely see an awful lot of the reports. You know, educational psychologist reports trying to do a martial art and. I think everyone, you know, there's this, you know, it's now recognised as a as a, a, a great way for athletic development and probably mental skills development for young people. So yeah, I I definitely know. I won't say I, I, I it it I was really flexible, so I never got injured until I started getting injured ultimately, and then when I started getting injured, it was wasn't great, but it definitely gave me a good physical base. I was quite okay at it, like, but um, I probably didn't apply myself as well as I. Could have had, and I think the fact that my father was probably teaching me didn't probably help, you know. And um, you know, yeah, well, as as you know, kids of coaches themselves sometimes tend to run in the opposite direction because it can sometimes be the the father or mother pushes a little too much, and and the child maybe has two, they're too involved, so they they kind of do it, and they they do they want to do it a little bit, but it's tough. It's hard being the son or daughter of a coach, in no matter what you know, sport you're doing because they are so passionate. Sometimes then when you go home from the event or from the activity, it's still going on and there's still talk about it and everything. So you never get away from it. I've never really thought of it at all. Only now I was just thinking, I've never thought of this, but I don't think my dad was pushing me or had any great ambitions for me in it. But I I, uh, I think he used to know I had talent at it, but I wasn't too bothered. But it just wasn't my passion. And I suppose that's, that's a lesson I would have learned, like, you know, in everything you're doing, if it's not your passion, it can be, you know, obviously there is there is that coach's element that, and I'm a big believer that a coach needs to be able to articulate the game and, and connect the, the player or the athlete to the game. And that's a really important um, to show the nuance of the sport and the beauty of the sport. And that's a really important part, important part of coaching. Now, I'm not saying my father could or couldn't do that, but I don't think he could do it for me anyways. But uh, I think, and obviously, you know, he wasn't, he was a coach, but he wasn't a coach. Like, they didn't know what coaching was, you know, back then it was a trainer or instructor or whatever. Uh, So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a jog down memory. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that actually, because a lot of, a lot of practitioners of karate and martial arts and things like that, they, you know, they would do their gradings, they would get up to the brown belt and the black belt, whatever. But, you know, then they might start taking classes in the club. And that was their level of coaching. They, they were passing on techniques they had learned, but they didn't get into the scientific side of it. And they didn't know all the fundamental 
core principles of a lot of the that a lot of coaches would know now. So you could get somebody who was coaching a karate club for years, but maybe if you ask them to coach another thing they might know how to approach it. Yeah, well, I suppose technical proficiency usually uh, leads to people being sent up the line to manage or to coach. Or, and it's the same in industry. It's the same in education. It's the same in, 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 in GA, in anything, um, you know. And they're two different disciplines. Without a doubt, um, having a technical knowledge is an advantage. But if you can't communicate it, articulate it, if you can't design sessions that um, help the learner lead uh, lead to learning, and if you don't understand teaching and learning, so there's learning, but there's also teaching. So if if the learner isn't learning the way we're teaching, well, I think Wooden used to say, they ha- "You haven't taught until they've learned." So I'd often hear coaches that maybe wouldn't be far advanced in their coaching journey would say, "You know, we we've done this and they don't know it," but they're con- they're confusing. You know, uh, they're just abdicating responsibility on the teaching side. Our job is coaches is to teach until they have learned and to find a way. And uh, I think teaching is. I heard a phrase recently. It's inter- interrupting the forgetting process so we're always looking to create ways uh, uh, we can articulate it and deliver it in such a way the core principles the key skills in such a way that they get it because repetition is so important in this stuff and um, yeah I think you know it's coaching is a profession like and it's a, it's a largely yeah. everyone thinks that you can just you know just do it and I wouldn't be over critical of coaches or the Joe Average or whoever's coming because it's a different discipline it's a completely different discipline and most people that are involved in, in coaching uh, even even a professional level um, definitely at amateur level and they just don't know what they don't know they don't know uh, a thing called coaching really exists and what it is they would have been experiential learners which they would have been trained i suppose would be the the old methodology so uh they you know you can't be too harsh on something i always say you don't uh, you don't test someone until you teach them something and a lot of people that are involved in, in coaching and whatever haven't been taught a better way how did you get into coaching? Like, obviously, you were hurling and you had, you know, you stopped doing the karate and stuff. But was it through hurling that you started like junior coaching or how did you actually start? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I was, uh, I started very young. I probably started around 16 or 17. Um, I, John Carr was a man from Karen Moore and I think he seen me training one day he tells me back anyways and he said uh, you know I would have been quite when I was training I was into it I was pushing on our lads I would be you know we hadn't a bad team so he said he seen me and he saw something in me so he asked me to come, come and help and I went down and helped and at the time uh, Karen Moore and Thurlock Moore used to come together to uh, beat Clare Galway in the community games and that was in Mosney at the time and it was you know it was enjoyable but um, for the first three years of my coaching I often say uh, the three the, the, the that team I had them three the different team three years in a row and they actually got to the Mosney three years in a row and they won it twice uh, they lost the final I think the third time I, I can't even remember but as someone who was 17 or 18 uh, coaching them and I use the term loosely sure obviously this was yeah. the greatest thing ever for my ego so I was abs- yeah. I was absolutely you know saying this is this is for me I am brilliant at this and uh, I've spent the rest of my life realizing that I'm not that good at it. Uh, so you know uh, <laughs> so um, yeah look at you know that maybe then 
like at the time then I would have stayed with my with the underage in the club and I, I would have been I wouldn't have had a clue really what I was at it would be go faster listen to me more and do it better and if you didn't if you didn't do it better well you didn't listen to me more and you weren't concentrating and you're not and, and you're not trying hard enough so it's very unnuanced very just uh, listen to me mug to jug type uh, trainer you know and um but I would have been trying to innovate and try to find better ways and I suppose then I would have started connecting teaching practices. So in school, I would have had, um, you know, my own way of doing things. We would have had a very um, relaxed atmosphere in the class. We would, you know, um, we would have had a lot of fun, a lot of enjoyment, um, a lot of music, a lot of, you know, generally. You, you did your you did your second level in Carnmore? No, my no, my second level school is it? No, I'm talking about teaching. Yeah, no. So when I was teaching in Bushy Park, I taught there for fifteen oh, okay, years. Okay, sorry. So yeah. when I was eighteen, yeah. nineteen, then I, you know, I stayed coaching, and then I started teaching, and that brought me to twenty three, twenty two, twenty three, and you know, I suppose I started learning more about teaching and started connecting it to coaching, and maybe became a bit better at it, and then, then I suppose just got so interested in it and. Um, you know, I would have always been one to kind of get into things before they become popular. Uh, like I often say, I think I was the first man to wear a pair of red chinos in Galway ever. But um, no, that's no claim to fame. <laughs> but but yeah, I, yeah, I'm not sure. It could be, yeah. it could be, but it mightn't be. You know, uh, and then when everyone started wearing them, I'd stop wearing them. So before everyone was cycling around on bikes, I, I had been to France and I'd cycled in the Alps, Alps, and I, you know, I I got into all that before people were doing this adventure race, and I did one of the first. Uh, what did they call it at the time? So I get into stuff. So I got into co- I got into coaching early. I don't know how I would always find myself. Uh, people around me wouldn't be interested in this stuff, but I'd be interested in it. And uh, yeah, I got a passion for coaching and then learned and learned. And then I would, you know, I would have, you know, probably been a bad student because I always thought I knew more than the teacher, you know, uh, in, in, in coaching parlance, you know what I mean? I would always say, oh, geez, we can do this better. We can, you know what I mean? And I probably then eventually said, well, I got injured a bit. And then I eventually said, look, it, I'll just take on the adult team here. And, uh, you know, I would prove my own concepts are <laughs> um, not, are not. So, um, yeah, I got, I took kind of involved with the senior team in my club for, at 26 like so I kind of gave up sport playing myself at that age or I, 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 I never really got into it because I was so I was so looking at coaching that I'd play a bit and I'd never really I never really gave my all um, once it came to adult level it, I was just dual focused and it doesn't really work so I, I was coaching all the time and trying to play and it didn't really work so anyways I went coaching the adult senior team and I put everything into that, um, and at the time, like um, I wouldn't have been aware of the sports science or the research around coaching, or even that there was a kind of a um, a place there, like UL or places that were te- teaching about coaching in sport, or that there would have been things like analysis in sport, or that there would have been, you know things like key performance indicators or stuff I kind of came up with that stuff myself we'll have to measure this we'll have to figure it out we'll have to understand what's important in the game 
because back then and it's not that long ago maybe she's only 12 years ago there wasn't that research like since then Damien Young has researched his 10 or 12 published papers on the demands of hurling um, we see the, the Sunday game isn't anymore just about you know who, the points going over the bar uh, to a certain degree now sometimes they're not as detailed as it could be but to a certain degree there's analysis and the systems and so so all that stuff I got interested in and um you know and then after that I I spent three years there with our senior team and that was a great education because they were largely my friends who I coached who coached and the team was getting older and we really put everything in so I would have learned a lot from that but it came at a huge cost like um like the the price of that for me was 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 heavy like because it was everything I always used to say whatever it takes was the phrase so 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 then when I when then when I went finished that I I you know I I still uh, we probably brought a team as far as could go I think we got to a quarter final for the first time in years and and, and we were probably three or four minutes away from winning it and uh, you know we didn't um, we didn't ultimately were beaten but we brought the team as far as we could and a lot of lads probably stayed playing because we gave it one last push and, and the team was old and then I kind of said to myself you know I, I could see down the line that the work hadn't been put in in, in the underage and that the the, the the new the new player coming wasn't as good as what was leaving and I could see that we were in for a lean period that was probably about Can, 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 I, can I ask you that there um, that's a really interesting point because when you look there at, for example, Currafin football, and a lot of people put down the success to the underage teams and the work being put in, in the same way like the Man United Youth Academies and so on, and the Youth Academies in soccer in the UK, do you feel that a lot of clubs fall by the wayside after a certain amount of years because the development is not put into the youth? So, like, and this is the area I now work in, um, I suppose I'm nearly making a profession out of it now at this stage, and um, hopefully soon um, full time but um, yeah because we're probably underestimating it so before we thought well anyone can do you know your man played football or he played whatever and now sure we'll give him them young lads and, and, and that's fine and he'll be fine so we now have a different generation so obey and command is no, no longer a, a form of, of leadership so that yeah. that that's gone, um, you know. If we go back to Catholic Ireland, where you do what you are told, that is now gone because there's access to more information and there's less fear and less everything. So the same is probably true of of the young sports person. So it's like evolve or die. So the best clubs have understand it, teaching and learning and player development, and the game now is. In well, no matter what anyone tells you, the players are now infinitely more skilled, better athletically developed, better tactically aware, you name it. Uh, so now we understand that scope for development is massive underage. If we give them the appropriate challenge at the right age, so the right and put in the, the correct behaviours, develop the correct mental skills, physical qualities, technical skills, all that stuff. We the game like the best is yet to come. So a lot of clubs now are are are, are tapping into this, and daddy coach now probably played at the end of the old f- style where it was coming in tactics and everything was coming in and then they might have been third level education or they might be working in a, in 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 
multinational where they see, you know, R&D, research and development, and they see change acceleration stuff and they understand the principles of getting better yeah or whatever you want to call it so now they're bringing that down and they're applying it to coaching structures and they understand it's about development and surrounding the player in the correct environment uh, and giving them the right challenge so we give them the right tools and the right challenges like the baby eating the dinner we don't just land down the big plate we give them the right things and the right little tools and we teach them the right skills and eventually they can eat the dinner so the challenge for clubs is bigger and bigger and bigger all the time because the learner is changing so much. They are now probably not outside as much, so they're not developing the physical qualities as much. Yeah, um, um, this this huge challenge. So the clubs now that tap into this and understand that, I suppose, coach development is now the best form of player development. In the past, a lot of players would have developed, despite of everything, you know, it would have been just a blind passion and a crazy passion. But now that will no longer be enough because the players that have been coached and developed very well, they're now learning the mental skills, you know, how to, how to, your arousal zones, how to control your arousal zones, attentional focus skills. They're now being physically developed from 12, 13, 14 at the, at the right age by, a lot of the time, by good professional people. So, the training sessions now we understand skill acquisition at a higher level and, and all that so the teams that are going to survive and thrive are the the the, the teams that um you know get their coaching structures right now tradition always helps so there's a tradition in in in, in certain places where your father played and you played and everything and that cannot that that is great but so the ultimate probably happened in Currafin where you had tradition and then you had expertise. You had Frank Morris, who, yeah. who who dedicated his life to it. And then I think uh, you probably had a certain group of guys who came together at a time to bring it to the next level then. So uh, I don't think they, uh, they like being mentioned, but like the likes of Dave Morris, Frank's dad came with a certain skill set at a certain time. He understood, he stood analysis. He understood, he understood, you know, tactics and he understood coaching and then Dave Hanley was a physio and he's with Connacht Rugby now and he was with you know he came they're the same age he came with a skill set so that they could prepare probably Mike Comer got into the S&C and he came with a skill set so they could prepare physically technically so they had the this the block of the player development at the bottom and Frank, you know, given his life there. And then they had the, you know, so that, and then they had tradition and then they had expertise at the top. And it's very, um, it, there's a lot of details in it and people will probably dumb it down, but there's an awful lot of people. And then they would have got in outside people like Rochford when they said to get to the next level, we need, we need more expertise. So the levels, you know, it's like, what is success like? You, you know, a team can go in the morning and have the best players and win, a, a, we'll say, a, a, a county final, if you want to call it that. And you can live the rest of your life off that, like, you know, and say, oh, you know, but that that could be, you know, that's winning or, you know, that mightn't be success. Like success might be for that team might be going on and winning f- three or four, you know, and that's real success. So I think what Currafin have done is real success, you know, genuine success, best principles, best practice over time um, it's very very rare because it's dependent on so much acumen expertise and leadership good coaching uh, and uh, tradition is, is brilliant too it's, it's, it's all there so that's um, 
Do you think as well, though, because obviously, like you mentioned there, Mike Comer, Dave Hanley, all those guys. So for them, they learned to be more technical with their own training and and, uh, for, for themselves as they were, you know, coming through the ranks. And then obviously they learned to become coaches in that sense as well because they could pass it on. I think that, you know, they played and then they had a skill set. So Dave was a physio. So he, he was exposed to what was happening in professional sport, you know. And then they started probably, and look at I'm, I know them pretty okay, but I'm only guessing because I, I, you know, I wasn't there. Um, but, but they started taking recover, recovery better, right? In rehabilitation better. Um, Mike Homer, you know, he's S and C. So rather than flogging lads and killing them and getting them injured, you know, 95% fit is a lot better than 100% injured. So understanding that. So it's that expertise. Like that's, that's, you know, a lot of people. And we even see it now in, in, in GAA now. You know, the, the leading team you know, in Hurling at the minute is, is, is Limerick. And there's a significant amount of expertise. Their coach has just finished a five-year research PhD in, in, in games-based approach to coaching. So there's an expertise, you know, and there's an expertise there uh, where we're taking influence from other sports and we're funneling it down and we're understanding the demands of our game and then how we can design sessions and articulate key coaching points and cues. Whereas in another management setup, you know, they might know what they don't know. They might say, well, whoever won 10 years ago, this is what he did and that's it. Whereas the new, new newer, you know, people that have more time, number one, they probably aren't, I'm not saying they're not working a day job, but their day job might lend itself more to time to research it. And they're accu- accumulating acumen and they're learning. And it's a learning competition. I always say sport and coaching and everything is a learning competition. And it comes at a price. Coaching for a lot of the people at the higher end or any end, you know, that want to, you know, thrive in it. It comes at a huge price, a cost, the cost of learning. And that's time. And that's probably not going here, there and everywhere at weekends. And, you know, it's getting up early. It's reading. It's it's researching. And it's, it's a lonely place, you know. Do you think um, what has been the leading sport over the last 10 years in terms of research and development and into training methods? Do you think football like soccer would be a big one or do you think like cycling or one of these? Uh, to be honest, like I'd be only guessing. I, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that. Um, I think there's been innovation in a lot of sports. So like there's been huge innovation in, in Gaelic football. And on that path, we'll say... You know, if we if we if we take if we go back and watch a game from twenty years ago, they kick the ball up the pitch and then they kick the ball down the pitch, yeah. And then you know whoever was bigger, faster, and stronger won it, yeah. And the be- the best players won. So if I kick a ball to a guy who's bigger, faster, and stronger, and put it between two lads, and one of them is bigger, faster, and stronger, he's going to win the ball. So and then the best players win. But if then coaches come and look at this and how can we devise a better system for us to win? So I suppose one of the first guys to do that was probably McGuinness. And he devised a system that suited his team to win. And ultimately they won. So in his evolution, and again, I wasn't there. I'm just looking at this. I wouldn't even, you know, I, 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 I might be wrong with what I'm saying here. 
But then when he had that, we'll say, that defensive solidity, then he added, wanted to understand, add another layer to it and another layer to it. And he understood the key skills that were needed for that system. He understood the principles of that system and the system ultimately. And then he understood, I suppose, the weak points of the system and how they'd have to evolve. And he understood it in great detail. And he's a qualified sports psychologist. And he had been here, there and everywhere. And then you get whoever, A. Paul Fiegannon or anybody, who comes and say, we're going to do exactly what they did. And you don't know the nuances of the key skills and how to coach them, how to teach them. You don't know the principles of the language. You don't know how they wanted to evolve that because they had evolved significantly by the time he had left it. And then you try that. You know, I've heard it before. I've heard it saying, oh, we're using the same style whoever used. And I'm there, man, like you you have no idea the level of detail they put into to getting that off the ground. Well, I think I think what it is, you know, if you look at any sport, when there's a successful manager and he has, you know, new and sometimes people might say weird training techniques or weird philosophies around around his training methods. Like look at Jose Mourinho, for example, in England, you know, and, and in, when he was in other countries, had great success. But then people were like, well, is it down to man management? Is it down to his training methods? But it's all of those things. But it's the mind of the coach as well. So I think when it comes to Jim McGuinness, I think for him, like you said, being a sports psychologist and then delving into all of this scientific approach towards training, you know, about how can we devise methods that will work for our team. I think it's very hard for another coach to recreate that because maybe they don't have the the intellectual background or they don't have the the physical background that puts it all together. So I think he was very unique, Jim McGuinness, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And he was an innovator and he reimagined how, how, how it went. And people loosely say that he ruined the game and he's to blame for defensive football. And like he did his thing and people who knew less than him copied him. And that's that, therein lies the problem. You know what I mean? Uh, and so, you know, and again, a lot of the pundits that end up with, with, with the voice in this aren't really coaches either. You know what I mean? They're pundits who played a game yeah. a long time ago. And um, so their articulation or their explanation of what's happening mightn't be that expertise either. You know, again, I often say we are a small nation island playing an amateur game. So it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really take a huge uh, leap of understanding to suggest maybe there's better ways in the world. uh, You know, maybe there's some people in in professional sports who work at it full time, you know, that have little bits of better ideas than whoever who 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 who's a great coach you know so our understanding of it our understanding of it is limited but that's changing now because uh, look at it, every every second lad here now is doing a phd in this and everything else but to come full circle coaching is ultimately a very simple practice yeah but you can't confuse sim- simple and easy so the most you know it was einstein that said simplicity is the highest form of complexity so we're not trying to make we're not ultimately trying to make this more complex we are trying to make it more simple through knowing what is important and it's to get to know what's important and what detail uh, 
is what's important and how we can drive application intention and concentration towards them little details because they would say little leopards become big leopards and big leopards kill so it is the crinous it is the attention to detail in these things that if the coach is able to drive that detail ultimately every coach keeps saying the same thing try harder you know what I mean or even sometimes we come back to this ill-defined concept of hard work and you know hard work is as I often say because I've heard Eamon O'Shea talk about it and I thought he articulated really well he said hard work has been able to put the ball into someone's hands from 30 metres away while they run at speed that is hard work and I can ultimately that saves an awful lot of running around the place like an Egypt so efficiency and understanding that you know the coach this thing keeps coming up on my screen I don't know what it is but the coach that understands that and drills down to it and will say that's been my experience of it the expert knows what's not important and to get to a place where we know what's not important is is really tough and for you so you know we, i want to talk about your books in a minute but before we do um when was the moment you know that you started developing your own you know philosophy and methods around coaching like did you is it something that you said i'm going to sit down and reevaluate all of this and look at where I feel I'm going wrong with this or what I don't know? Or did you kind of have these things you were putting away in scrapbooks and diaries and building it up over years? How did it develop? Yeah, um, you know, I've often heard people saying I'm writing a book and I've learned from experience you're not writing a book until it's written. So uh, I would have... um, However way I found myself into writing down things and journaling and thinking about things and... Uh, you know, and in a very inefficient manner because I didn't know this stuff existed out in the world. I I, I was just making it up myself. Uh, like, how would we measure our performance? I didn't know those stuff. So I, I started at that and that, you know, I, I, I would have always written down stuff and figured it out and, and all that. And then ultimately, one day I just said, I think someone said, you want to start stop reading books and write your own book. I said I will. I'll start writing my own book. So, so I started writing a book, um, where about coaching, and actually it was going to be about the power and potential and scope of coaching to improve society as a whole. How the whole thing was going to be about how sport is should be the centre of of society and how we can solve obesity mental health and everything through proper coaching in sport that was my my thing but again it wasn't uh, when i started on that the the feedback was not practical it's uh it's almost like a manifesto you know what i mean yeah 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 you you were being too much of a dictator <laughs> i was just saying imagine if every club in the country had a place for everyone to come down and play with their friends in a good environment where we could challenge them appropriately, teach them the proper skills and teach them love and respect of the game and themselves and each other. So then when I got that idea, then I said, Jesus, I have to write. Well, how are you going to do this? So then I started writing. Uh, and then I had a story around, in my head, around Michelangelo. Oh, he said about the angel, David. I saw the angel in the stone and I carved until I set him free. So that said to me, oh, Jesus, coaching is a bit like carving or being a carver where you draw out... Uh, a masterpiece out of raw materials. So in order to do that, and I've said, I must have told this story a million times, and sorry for anyone who's listening that's heard me on about this before. No, well, you're probably going to have to tell a million more. <laughs> well, I think I will, hope, hopefully, I hope we'll have to. But so in order to draw the, that masterpiece out of the raw materials, you need a perspective or a set of lenses to see things for what they could be, a few of the skills and tools 
to, to help realize it. And then you need tools, so the right tools for the job. And then, you know, you need your, your tools and skills. So you need prospective tools and skills. And then I said, right, Carver, right? So just C-E-R-V-E-R, uh, Carver. So that was going to be my Carver framework. And within that Carver framework, there was going to be six elements that had to spell Carver. All right. So they ended up being, I actually, well, it was connection, awareness, research, values and visions, endorsing and reflection. Now, I was actually, I can remember saying to my dad uh, at the time, would I call a carver or carver or I, I, I had two other elements, I can't even remember. But I set, I settled on them six elements. So I was going to have a carver framework for building a coaching world and I was going to have six elements. Uh, connection, awareness, research, values and visions and, and, and endorsing. So within that then I had to write a book or a framework which followed that them elements uh, uh, to make something that was compact that would explain coaching in a simple way about getting the best out of people and uh, so from that then we had the connection started so I had there was about eight elements in connection so it was coach to child or coach to player that was the first connection then we had player to player was the second connection player to the game to the club and to their future in the club was was the third connection coach to coach so we could work in a, in a coordinated manner and then we had a few more little connections but it was team back to parent and parent and coaching team to parent and then the a was awareness again if you've heard this all before i'm really really sorry uh, awareness was we had awareness so the coach awareness and the player awareness so the coach awareness was self-awareness why did you coach? How did you want to perform? Blah, blah, blah. There was also an element of role awareness. What is coaching? Do you understand what it is? Uh, so there were two, you know, um, there were two awarenesses. And then the player awareness. We wanted to bring a player who was self-aware, who understood if it is to be, it is up to me. So how can we draw out self-awareness in a player? And that was lots of questions and listening to their answers. And then we wanted to have in-game awareness, which was ultimately decision-making. And in order to have that, we needed to have of-game awareness, which was understanding the principles of play, the systems and the structures. So we needed them three awarenesses, self-awareness, in-game awareness, and of game awareness. So in order to do that we needed to research which was the R which was to find out about how we could build the pillars of the player uh, mental skills, physical skills, technical skills, tactical skills and lifestyle skills and what we needed there. And then the V was values. So what were the values that you would want to you know stand over as, as, as a coach? And then the visions were what you were trying to create. So what type of coach did you want to be? What type of player did you want to produce? What type of team did you want to produce? How did you think a session should look? So ultimately everything then, there was a few more visions there, but we won't sweat them. But everything then led, everything to that point then led you to being able to design a vision for a session. Well, so I knew my research, I knew what I was about, I knew why I was there, I knew what I was trying to achieve, and now I needed to create a session. And I had research around whatever. So we created a session, a vision for the session, as I had to call it. I had to brand everything in the, in the element. And then E was going to be endorsing, which meant, you know, can we use language intelligently to notice things that are happening around us? And because of that, we would be positive, but it wouldn't be, oh, awesome play or this rubbish, you know, amazing goal. It would be, I love the way you moved your feet. Okay, good body shape there. 
excellent you bounced off the ground when you were hit well done good recovery so endorsing was like you were trying to f- the, the idea was behind the, the reticular activating system in the brain which meant you know you were conditioned to see what you looked for or what was important to you so that was endorsing so especially with kids now we will look at I'm looking at the All Blacks there and um, different things we would see moderate um, you know at a elite level coaching it can't be all it has to be direct but a developmental coaching it needs to be more staged and more patient and more understanding so the endorsing was a way of looking at it saying what can I see is what, what is right with what they're doing and then trying to drive the confidence which would ultimately drive the competence and contribution and all them things that we understood so then or then uh, came the reflection so after each session the coach would have to reflect the team would reflect and then the management team would reflect and, and uh, reflection I was only reminded of this statement I made there one day about reflection because I was in a meeting there last night and they reminded me but reflection is like washing so it really works really well but you kind of have to do it if not every day you have to do it every second or third day or else you start to smell you start to smell so so the reflective piece was the continuous improvement so you had built your world and then through you had planned your sessions and all that stuff and then you'd done them and then a little bit of reflection and could you have a reflection tool that was connected to what you had built so the phrase i was using was building a coaching world through the carver framework and i wrote a book on that that damn near killed me because i created such a uh, well it was a simple concept but then i had to write a coaching book into this concept and that book now is touch touch wood will be written as a is being written at the minute you know i'm at it uh, with the help of another guy as a corporate coaching book so the carver corporate framework for coaching it's the same principles the principles of the principles of the principles so methods will are a little you know change in that but principles are you know they say methods are few but methods are many but principles are few so the same principles apply to whether i'm in a school environment whether i'm a carpenter teaching an apprentice you know the same principles of coaching so coaching is a universal practice across all disciplines and uh, so that was the carver framework when you did your first book coaching children in sport had you already developed that or was that in the process as you were writing that book uh, well it was more uh, so the coaching the, the title was coaching children in sport the carver framework so that was how i had done it that was really how I'd been my life trying to figure this out. So that was, and again, there's nothing unique in it. It's only my perspective that's new, unique in it. Like there's, you know, there was times where I thought I was, you know, I, I didn't even know this world existed. I was making it up. So, so it's things that intuitively through self-study and through all the principles of what is in the framework. That's how that's how it came about. And uh, yeah, so th- that book then, like I was writing a book for a coach at the time. I I knew it was a book about coaching, but I had to write a book about coaching children because I was a teacher and who was going to listen to me about coaching in general? You know, so that's why I wrote Coaching Children in Sport, the Carver Framework. I probably should have wrote just the Carver Coaching Framework and said, this is the principles of coaching. Um, but no one had read it. So I just wrote about coaching kids. Can I ask you there though, because you said there that that's something you said who was going to listen to me did you feel at that time when you were writing the first book that you were really trying to write the second book but you didn't have the confidence so you had to start from where you knew 
which was coaching kids. Uh, no, no, yeah. Well, the second book is different. The second book is for the athlete themselves. So the second book is called Be the Best You Can Be in Sport, a book for Irish youth. So that was a different book. Um, it's a different, it's for the athlete, which, which you know, um, that book has, uh, has gone really, really well too and been well received. Um, so I had nothing in my head. You know, again, I go back to people saying, oh, I'm writing a book or anything. You're not really writing a book until it's written. Um, it only becomes a book when it's finished. So I didn't know anything. I, I didn't know I was writing. A, I, I told people I was writing a book, but I didn't know I had a book. And then, um, you know, um, I suppose it's a bit like I, I listened in preparation for this podcast. I listened to your one with Leo Morn. It's it's probably a little bit like, um, you know, writing a song or something. You know, it's kind of in you and it just comes out and... Um, you're not so sure, and then ultimately, maybe uh, writing a song could be a little bit easier than writing 400 pages of a book. But uh, well, I'm not saying it's easier, but simpler. I, mean, I don't know. But like, it's just the doggedness to stay at it, to see it through. So the devil is in the detail, and the nearer you are, the further you are away from it. But also, like the thing is, for sportsmen or musicians or actors, you know, there are certain times during your journey and your career where you have a lot of self-doubt and you have a lot of you know, um, doubts about is the, am I doing this the right way? Will anyone want to read this? Will it be taken the right way? Will I have a lot of critics? Did you have that when you were doing the first book? Like, because you said it was a lot of self study. Yeah, but like, yeah, I, I, again, I can only talk for myself and people that I understand. I think there's a lot of self doubt in anyone who's on the limit or who's out there. There has to be. That's what drives innovation. You know, if you're so sure of what you're at you're never going to innovate so it's about, all about innovation and it's always changing so the best is yet to come so there's always going to be self-doubt um, and I think that's a driver um, I, I don't think there's anything ever wrong with that um, element of it I, I, I don't see I'm pretty sure whoever when they're bringing out an album isn't going to go yeah I'm I can guarantee this is going to sell. Yeah, of course, of course. But ultimately, if you bring out one album and it sells and people like it, well, then your second album, you're going to say, well, Jesus, you know, this might sell too. So, and that, if it's called a confidence in what you do or whatever, it probably comes, in my experience, uh, later than what people would see it in you. And I think there's, it's, it's interesting because... I, um, you know, people can say, oh, you could do this or you could go anywhere or you could, you know, do whatever. But ultimately, until you believe that yourself, um, it's not going to happen. And, and, and it's not saying, it's not flicking a switch. A certain amount of it just comes with time. You know, I, I now feel it's right. I feel, I feel, um, I feel I can stand over this. And that's earned, you know what I mean? That's earned. It's like the athlete training. That accumulation of training gives them that sense. Like, I can meet a kid out the road there today and I can say, geez, I think you have it, buddy. I, 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 you know, and, and that will inspire him a little bit. But ultimately, until he knows it, he can feel it. And people can probably see it in him a bit before. But, um, that's my experience of, of, of the writing. It's it's about like overcoming the fear. But the fear is ultimately what drives the the attention to detail and the going back and the figuring out. Like, you know, part of excellence is knowing you're not... I, I, someone quoted me there on this the last day, so I remember it. I've written in the book there, I think. Part of excellence is knowing you're not good enough to stay the same. So that that's that fear of, you know, getting better, always getting better. It's a mindset, it's a mentality. And then there's ultimately a bit of pride in your work. Like, it's, it's easy to bring 
a book to 80% in my experience like it's it's easy but it's like the 80 20 you'll get it to 80 percent with 20 percent of the effort but to get it finished at the end and tightened and be able to stand over every word and rip them out and and go through it like i rewrote the first book 30 times you know what i mean like the 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 human price of that was you know i'm still scared i still get a headache thinking about it and and that's you know that's that's the price of it so um and an awful lot of even the second book and the second book i would have I've interviewed 54 people across 15 sports to get little snippets on the different topics. So both I and different professionals in different areas have written the chapters and then there's amendments from coaches and players. And the thing, and I tried to go after the athletes who had been through it all and had stayed at the top for a long time. So just hadn't traded on on ability. You know, it's very easy. It's not. I'm not saying it's not very easy. None of this is easy. But you can come and win something and disappear. You know, but sustained excellence is, com- yeah. is something completely different. I think Leo talked about you know staying in it so, so long. That's it's a completely different game. It's not an ability. Obviously, the ability gets it there, but there's a whole different set of qualities required to sustain excellence. And, and Paul, can 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 I ask you? Nowadays, obviously, with so much emphasis being placed on you know mental health, spirituality, and you know, developing the inner self and people being not afraid to show their weaknesses and and to for people to help them overcome those. H- how do you think that's changed the philosophy in sport? Because for lots of sports, whether it be combat sports or, you know, um, the Gaelic or anything, there was an awful lot of, you know, macho and image and you, you really had to be a tough guy all the time. So how do you feel it is now for younger guys and kids and boys and girls with with softer kind of um, personalities in sport nowadays? Do you feel that the, the sport is changing a lot to, to welcome them in and to nurture the weaknesses? Uh, underage sport is, yeah. Like uh, child sport, underage sport definitely is. And to, to be fair to the GA, they've done a good job in decompetitizing de- or making it uncompetitive young. And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of uneducated discourse around that at the time, you know, oh, they needed this or they needed that. And, you know, if we weren't beating the locals at under eight, yeah, if we weren't beating the locals at under eight, you know, it was going to be, you know, a disaster and there had to be competition. Now, there's a certain amount of truth in that because we do need stretch and support and they need to be challenged. But it's understanding this age and stage of the learner. Um, and, and, and like sport you know, coaches are so important in sport because it's it's it can be so challenging. Like that's why you will see, you know, a, a coach goes into a place and changes the whole place. Guardiola goes in and and he changes the whole place or clap because you you're, you're constantly trying to do something that is really superhuman. You know, in Premier League, there they're they're playing every three or four days. It's a superhuman thing. So they need so many good professionals around them. Even uh, Joe Canny with Currafin there. They, he'd be a buddy of mine and he was involved in coaching them and they're three in a row and I said Joe do you not realise what you're trying to do is, is is almost superhuman so the support that's needed around that and that's why you know the coaching is coming and you know even like I would have listened to Johnny Wilkinson there recently and you know he extre- he, he, he went to the extreme extremes to, to achieve greatness and he did but he probably didn't enjoy it and uh, you know he wrote a book then that a lot of people would have taken as a bible but now he kind of distanced himself and maybe I, I don't want to misquote him but I believe that he distanced himself from a lot of what's in it because he says that was like crazy what I was at and and, and I was on the, it was on bordering psychosis 
and and that's why the coach is now so important because to to achieve excellence there has to be you know there's a bit of an extreme there so that's why they need the pillars around them of people who can understand and help them understand and mental skills sports psychologist all them people that's why you get all these big backroom teams in in high performing even amateur sports now because you need so many people to support the athlete because what they're trying to do is a little bit superhuman go to work from nine to five and then be almost like a professional athlete for the for the evening and do that for five or six days for 48 weeks of the year and um, you know get through college and get a profession so people that don't and I'm not saying I, I don't claim to understand all of this or any of this or half of it, but people that don't understand it, don't appreciate it at the level it's at, you know, um, you know, they do the disservice. And it's not to say you need all these people. It's it's to say you need all them good people. You know, if you have good people, um, you know, I always say sport is about good people trying their best. Good people trying their best. Yeah, but- I, I think, though, you know, we're moving into a different... We're moving into a different era in not just in sport, but, you know, in work psychology and everything, because you we have to look now. It's not that people are becoming softer, but people are becoming more exposed and more open to what, you know, ails them. And so for at the moment, obviously, mental health is a big issue because of COVID and people kind of feeling trapped in their own homes. And for a lot of sports stars who, who maybe can't play as much sport as they would like, now their mental health is being challenged in another way. But what I always kind of think is when you look at sports stars from an early age, sometimes they have a lot of pressure. And, you know, we've all heard of the underage clubs who have the guy on the sideline shouting more curses than the devil, you know. And people like there was some incidences in around Galway there where some clubs faced criticism because of, things that were being said to kids that we felt, oh, no, that shouldn't be said to children. So when we look back in the early days, a lot of uh, GAA and other sports used to be very hard on the kids to achieve results. So that, like for me, in my opinion, you have to nurture things. And that's what's better about sport now. They're not being so critical and not kind of saying, you're don't you're not making the team, Johnny, you're off the team. So nowadays, I feel there's far more nurturing going on in these good clubs, no? Yeah, uh, y- yes. But again, I, I, I'll be a defender of coaches. You know, the, the people that were, were talking about, they didn't know any better. They didn't know any other way. They got no training. They got no education. They got no support. And they... They, they they had a passion that they didn't know how to articulate and they didn't know how to challenge and assist appropriately. And it's very easy to say how the doer of de- deeds could have done things better. Um, but the challenge of coaching young children appropriately is really, really hard. And um, we historically we have um, attached a certain level of, of kind of... Um, and it's good tribalism or identity or whatever in sport and you know shame like Jesus we'd be ashamed if we lost here and then that coaching them coaching behaviours are driven from them beliefs so you know in my work what I try to do is create an environment where it's easy or easier to develop as a coach so we talk about the club a lot of the time and who is the club we are all the club but it's club's responsibility if they can and it's a challenge because 
a lot of this is done to volunteers, to provide an environment and guidance for the coach where they can get better at coaching. So if you're in a in a club where it's all about just winning, well, your behaviour is going to be, geez, we have to do whatever we want to win. But if you're in a club that has a, a, an extra layer of knowing, right? So the big picture is that we produce lots of her, lots of players long term who will support it. Now, how will we do this, right? And it's not to say that we can't challenge or be direct, because the better the coach player relationship the more direct they can be like it doesn't have to be oh you're a great boy and you're all that there's a there's a kind of um there's a confusedness confusingness there that a coach shouldn't demand it's not a confusing but it's kind of a it's kind of a grayness the coach needs to be demanding we need to be stretched right we don't need praise junkies you know we don't need to make kids into that but they need the right challenge and the right assistance. So can we get a right challenge? And then can we challenge them there to be the best they can be? But to know where the level is. And that's it. And that's that's one of the principles of development. Challenge. So it's not that your man that's roaring at them. Or your man that's going, oh, smiling at them. Going, oh, you're great guys. They could be equally, you know, they could be equally doing a disservice. You know, so coaching is, it's, 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 it's there's more to it than that there's more to it than that um, but ultimately it's really simple because people that get to it know what's important so if I'm important if I'm if I'm coaching in the morning uh, under seven hurling team what is important right the first thing is important is that they love coming up right okay the next thing is important that they feel psychologically safe there they feel they can express themselves Okay, the third thing is important is that they learn to hold the hurl because it's an object control game where you're trying to control an object with an, ob- uh, with an object. So if the first place they must start is controlling the hurl, the object. Okay, and they're the three things I need to achieve. How do I do that then? Where, what is the appropriate challenge then? That's my next challenge. What are the behaviours I'm trying to get into them? I want to create good learners so that they can access the game higher as they go along. But if I cannot, if I don't have the vision or the lenses to have a future focus to understand, well, this now is important here because it'll lead to that and lead to that and lead to that. It was like, uh, who, where did John Wooden start? John Wooden, the greatest coach of all. Day one, season one, every year, learn how to tie your laces. So, you know, and from that then, that was basketball, so they wouldn't get blisters. That was the starting point. So, so it, 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 it's a big challenge for people to come out of any walk of life and to coach well. Uh, so I, I, I'm not that critical of people, provided their hearts in the right place. Yeah, know? well, well I, 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 suppose, I suppose in some ways what's happened now is the world has become very politically correct. So that will carry across to all things, sport, work, industry, everything. So whereas in the past, if there was a, a coach on the sideline given given welly to the youngsters, the parents would go, it's all part of the game. But nowadays, parents might be like, I don't want to talk to my child like that. And I suppose, as you said, you need to nurture them, but you need to challenge them as well. And you can't, it's very hard to find the middle ground, isn't it? 
It is. It is. So I think that's how, how you carry yourself as a coach is really important. So that's that self-awareness part, how you want to be perceived, how you want to treat the weakest, because how you treat the we- how you treat people affects how they treat them. So people can see that over time. But if you're unaware of all of that, if you think this is about the game and baiting it into Johnny today, you don't see that bigger picture. And y- y- you could still, you still have the potential to be a great coach. You know, but you just don't know what you don't know. So there's a Malawan saying, I'm told, I quote these things that I heard years ago and then I I just stay quoting them. But if you don't know what you don't know, then you won't know. But if you do know what you don't know, then you might know. So these people just don't know what they don't know. And if I got a video of them in the morning and I videoed them at a training session and I said, right, buddy, we're going to sit down here now and watch this. They wouldn't like watching it because they'd know that wasn't great. You know what I mean? So... They're still good people. They're still, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you see, my my point, I suppose, in all this really is, in some clubs, it can be a little easier to coach because the environment can support proper coaching behaviours. Whereas in other clubs, tradition will be this is the way we do it around here, and then you go in and you become that, you become them behaviours. You know, whereas if the same coach went into a different environment where there was a little bit more nuance, a little bit more expertise, and a little more bigger picture, well, they'd probably display different Tell behavior. me about the coaches. You said you have like, you know, a multitude of coaches. Was it easy to get them to come on board? Or like, because sometimes these people are so busy, it's even hard to get to talk to them. Was it hard to get in contact with them? Yeah, yes and no. Like some people are, it doesn't matter what you're doing, they're easier to deal with than others, you know. Um, so like through my first book, I would have been lucky enough to get good, you know, I met a lot of people and met, you know, got to know a lot of people. So, it's a small country, uh, Ireland, so by degrees I got to, uh, a lot of people and most of them I wanted to. Um, so again, you know, there's a skill in approaching people too and I learned I learned that as I went along. And so, yeah, I, I got everyone. I, like, I was really lucky. I got a lot of the top people in sport in Ireland. Like I, you know, in, in rugby, I had Stuart Lancaster, Leinster rugby coach. I had Andy Friend, Connacht rugby coach. I had uh, Noel McNamara, the head of the Leinster Academy. Uh, Bundy Aki, jo- Joey Carberry, then in Harlan. Um, I Canark, Paul Canark, uh, he's Limerick coach. Eamon O'Shea, he's tip coach. And um, Henry Shefflin, Eddie Brennan. Uh, Gaelic football, it's yeah, Donahue, and yeah, and I had a lot of the ladies in um, um, Nikki Daly's Irish hockey, uh, Valerie McCahey was Cork football, um, Nadia Powers, an athlete. So, yeah, they were the 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 more mm, salubrial, and then I got uh, the academics, so the coaching academics from UL, a lot of guys, Phil Kearney, Dr. Phil Kearney, uh, Ian Sherwin, Dr. Ian Sherwin, Dr. Damien Young, um, and then. I had uh, a lot of my buddies who would be in the professions. Neil O'Toole is an SNC coach. Uh, Dave Morris is into analysis. Um, Dave Hanley is into is a physio. Donny Fox in athletic development and physio. Mike Day, nutritionist. Katie Lydon, Dr. Katie Lydon. Um, she's from my colon. So I got all them people. Look at hard work. You know, there was great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's great that you were able to write that book and. Obviously, you know, to, to have some of those contacts and put them in because 
it's in that kind of a book it's great to see other people's perceptions and how they look at things and how they differ as well no yeah. well i think you know the, the the three things i was trying to get was information insights and inspiration so that's how i framed it so um that story element is all so so important so it's yeah i i think it came together nicely you know i think it worked well so yeah so far so good the book has been yeah and and obviously because you know normally when anyone releases a book they have a book tour and so on so you've kind of been doing a lot a virtual book tour i suppose no uh i don't know did i really i uh i i do a lot of the the uh, media were good to me like paul burns is a buddy of mine he he, he helps me with the media so I, I did a good bit of that stuff and I um I haven't really done a book tour. No, no, that's it. Just yeah, you know. I know Paul Burns has has done a lot of work for me. He's a great fella, and um, Paul Burns Media, and uh, so I I've gone on well there, and like I've social media there and that stuff, and that drives it on there. And but for me now, uh, the book is out three months, and you know, obviously after Christmas, now it's about reconfiguring it, really getting it time to get it to the market because I think there's a there's um. It's a huge scope for this book and, and for the first book too. So that that's that next layer of detail to to get bring it to the next level to evolve it. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. I in 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 coaching parlance, I have I have the same players. So I need to get new strategies and innovate and look for higher levels of of performance. Look for new markets and new opportunities. It's the same principles. Yeah, and so. For you, you you said there. Obviously, you're, you're working on another book as well. So, what what do you kind of hope to achieve this year? Um, this year, I um, well, I'm involved in coaching. I've my own lads. Uh, they're now probably uh, under seventeen, but the majority of them would be under sixteen. So, I'll be managing coaching my lads. Uh, I'm involved with an adult hurling team, um, so I'll be helping out there. Um, I'll be working on the Carver Corporate Framework, the coaching book, so I hope to get that finished uh, as soon as possible. And then I'm working on uh, a few little other projects. So, yeah, all them things, I'm working on a couple of diary ideas and, and stuff like that. So, all that stuff, yeah, you wouldn't want to be listing it out too often, are you? You'd, you'd, uh, no. <laughs> you'd scare yourself, you know. I, 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 I won't keep going because You'll drive I won't mad. keep talking because there's probably about yeah. five other things I'm trying to do at the same time. Uh, and I got engaged there, so no, I need I, to. I, I think it. Oh, you got, I got engaged at Christmas, so I need to. I need to improve uh, or make my my lovely lady Lauren even happier than I do already. So that's another area for yeah. for development, you know, and learning. You, you need now. You're multitasking. Now you're really multitasking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's 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 there. Look at. I I don't think you can be. Uh, I try not to become too self-absorbed or too whatever. So look at just keep it coming, and I hope the energy and the passion stays up for it. And uh, yeah, you know, well, that's... you know, like I want to, I want to, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. And you know, I think in some ways, you know, with these books, you've been, you even though you mightn't consider it kind of brave, but you've you've gone into a whole new area because there's not many people doing this or have done this, especially in Ireland. And I think it's a leap of faith as well, because you, you know, as you said, it was self-study and self-evaluation and, you know, years of experience, whether it be bad or good, has brought you on to write these books. And I think, you know, you know, there's going to be a lot in it that's going to help people. I think people are going to take what they will from it. But I think it's definitely on a really positive note, it's going to help, you know, the youth and, and help children. 
uh, become better athletes and help coaches become better coaches. And I think definitely, as you said, with the with the new book and with the following book you're coming out with, I think in the corporate world, there's a lot of those methods and strategies that will really work. So, you know, I want to say well done and we want to wish you the best of luck with it in the future. Thank you, Simon. No, I enjoyed this because I was a bit, uh, I wouldn't say apprehensive coming on because normally the stuff I do is just about coaching and I was thinking, oh, I don't really want to be here talking about myself because it's not really, like coaching isn't isn't about being self-serving. Like ultimately, yeah. I'm talking about a servant practice, you know, so you can't really yeah. be self-serving in it. So I was kind of thinking, Jesus, am I coming on here talking about myself? But I think we talked a lot about coaching, so I'm kind I'm pretty happy about yeah no no i mean like it's always you know we have to talk about our ourselves and you know the things we do because for me in this podcast it's about your journey and what brought you to where you are and what were the methods and you know how does somebody become a good coach so how does somebody become a good podcaster how does somebody become a good teacher the thing is you have to look into what you've done and what you're planning to do so I mean, I, I think, you you know, it, it was a really interesting interview and, and I enjoyed it. And I look forward to speaking to you again in the future when your your world of coaching has evolved even more, you know? Yeah, well, yeah, it will be evolving. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, we're going into new new places this year now and trying to push new limits and, and trying to take it to the next level like everything is about the next level for me because it doesn't matter where you really are if you can just keep bringing it to the next level and that's the message I'm always trying to get into players I deal with like it doesn't matter where you are if we all just try and get to the next level it will be fine so it's that constant striving um, that, 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 that we're into that's great that's great and you know I want to thank you Paul again and we wish you the best and good luck with everything Take care. Well, I always end by saying, I don't know why I said it, I got where I came across, but viva la revolution. Long live the revolution. I always started saying, I'm, I was trying to start a coaching revolution. That was what I was trying to do. And I probably still am. So, you know, long Well, live you're, the you're doing the right job. You're doing the right job. Good man. Good man. We'll talk soon. Uh, thanks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Paul Kilgannon. And we wish Paul all the best with his new book and future books. And we might have him on the show again sometime in the future. So thanks very much, Paul. Okay, on to our next guest for next week. And uh, that is Jim McKee. So Jim McKee is a professional visual artist and singer-songwriter from County Tyrone, Ireland, who has been deeply inspired by the Burn and the West of Ireland, which has been his spiritual home since 2001. As a recording art artist also, extending beyond that of a visual artist, he has performed across Ireland, the UK, France and the USA with his songs, which have also been filmed in films and commercials. So we look, look forward to talking to Jim next time, and that will be a really interesting conversation, so we hope you tune in for that one. Okay, thank you. Take care, guys.